0: My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao MKE Church and I am so thrilled to be with you all in this space. Looking forward to many, many weeks to come, yeah? Awesome. We are wrapping up our summer series. It's true, the the summer is coming to an end. Um, And we are wrapping up our summer series, Sunday School Horror Stories, um, which has been one of my personal favorites. As we've been going into all of these different stories that we love to tell to children, for sometimes questionable reasons, um, that are actually quite horrifying. So um, today we have David and Goliath, I wonder sometimes how, how often the fullness of that passage gets read in service um, with the full, you know, killing of Goliath and um, cutting off of his head. Um, because I think that sometimes we think about David and Goliath in the kid terms that we were given, which is just little guy beats big guy and everybody cheers. But it's actually a violent and horrifying story. So um, if folks want to call out, what are the things that you know about the David and Goliath story? Slingshot, underdog, Underdog. really big guy, yeah, it says um, six cubits and and a span. Uh, As we all know, that's very big and not just a random (laughs) measurement that means nothing to us. Um, No, that probably means, it's it's hard because a cubit is the length of a forearm and a span is the length from pinky to thumb, so it really depends on who's measuring. But somewhere around nine feet, this is a big dude. What else do we know about David and Goliath? David was a shepherd boy. Anything else? Yeah, so small he didn't fit into the armor and couldn't walk in it. What else do we know? But he was cute. He was handsome, ready and handsome. So we have this story. We have this story that we're relatively familiar with. And again, we, we, we hold on to these details as though it's totally normal to have a child soldier recruited into this army on behalf of the king to go up against a giant who is in, like, full armor, right? Like, they go, it goes into a, an absurd and unusual amount of detail in the scripture about um, the armor and protection that Goliath had. And then we've got this kid who's going in with literally nothing in terms of armor and protection. Goliath has his own shield bearer. Goliath has, like, a minion who's running around shielding him. But David has nothing. He's this little kid. And so we have in this story, if we're going to look at it, for what it is, a kid recruited to be a child soldier into the imperial project to murder people for his nation state. And he wins, yay! Not a great story from that perspective. and, and I think that we, we lose that a lot. We keep, we keep this underdog story. We keep this, you know, God, God loves the little guy. Um, but we don't do a lot to challenge the violence and imperialism built in it. And this whole series has been about these stories that we tell the kid in this, kids in this uncritical way that kind of reinforces this imagery of violence and war. And on our last Sunday talking about this, I want to actually make a confession to you all. I really like telling stories with a lot of darkness and even death or violence to kids. I liked it because when I was a kid... (laughs) Sorry, Cameron. We'll we'll talk about it later. (laughs) I am not in charge of the kids' ministry curriculum. But when I was a kid, I loved the Brothers Grimm. I loved Hans Christian Andersen. Has anybody ever read the original Little Mermaid? Yeah.. Mm. It's so good and so weird and so dark. Um, the Little Mermaid, when she gets her feet, for instance, she is. Uh, she, she works with this witch to get rid of her, her tail and has feet, and she dances, but it describes it that every um, step she took was like stepping on coals or having swords um, in her feet. So she's in pain. Um, In the end, actually, she doesn't get the guy, and she throws herself off of a boat and turns into sea foam. In the Brothers Grimm, people die left, right, and center. It is violent and dark. And, And so, one of the questions I have is, why do we tell these really dark stories to kids? And the most obvious answer to me is that the world is a violent place. The world is a difficult place, and kids are growing up into a world that has systems of evil and violence and oppression, where battle might not look the way that it did back in David's day, but we have to come up into the world knowing how to cope with violence, knowing how to find our place in the struggle, knowing what it means to be living in a world of war. Now, in our world, in Milwaukee, in the United States, we have a lot of remove from some of the worst, um, kind of most immediate senses of violence in the world. That doesn't mean that we live in a nonviolent world or that we're not living in a state of war, but it means that we have some sort of very shallow protection from it. We get to be in denial about it. Follow me on a tangent about chicken nuggets. I was a vegan for two years. I eat meat now, and we can get into that later. But when I was um, investigating my own relationship to meat, and my own relationship um, to the systems, the factory farming, um, the, the commerce that brought meat into my life, I realized that what bothered me as a vegan was not seeing people tear meat off bones, but watching people eat chicken nuggets. Because chicken nuggets are not really (laughs) meat, though they did come from formerly living animals. A chicken nugget is a lie. It is a sanitized, uniform, pretend food that doesn't feel like meat and doesn't have that same relationship, that closeness to the sacrifice and loss of life that brought it there. You could feed kids chicken nuggets into adulthood, and they might not be faulted for never knowing that it came from a living breathing animal in our world when we sanitize all of our stories of violence when we pretend it doesn't exist when we eliminate battle imagery and conversation from our faith when we erase the parts of the Psalms that speak in violent terms and only say to God be the glory we're erasing part of our reality we're pretending that violence isn't happening we're sanitizing we're removing ourselves from it and we're in denial. There are many ways to use this imagery. There are many ways to talk about kingdoms and lords and battles to be won. But the way that the world does it, when the world does encounter war and violence and imperialism is to celebrate it, is to wave flags and, and celebrate empire. That wasn't the way that Jesus talked about battle. Or about war, or about empire. And he did all of those things. Jesus didn't shy awake from violent imagery. Jesus talked, for instance, about having enemies, but he said to pray for them. Jesus talked about the kingdom, but not as ruled by the monarchs we know in this world. Jesus was called Lord, which was a way of saying that Caesar was not. So, in a world of violence, how can we not tell stories of violence? In a world of imperialism, how can we not tell stories of kings and armies and war? But it is only holy if, like Jesus, we turn it on its head. If it's satirized, critiqued, broken down, and re-understood. David and Goliath is a story that we tell in a world where children are recruited into war. David and Goliath is a story that we tell while violence is constant in Palestine. David and Goliath is a story we tell while the big ugly machine of war intimidates and threatens and coerces and is so innocuous to us in our daily life that we don't even think about it as we pop chicken nuggets. This is not a story about God's brute force beating out another. This is the opposite of that. This is a story about how the powers of the world with their armor and their metal and their hubris, with their giants and their swords and their armies, with their threats and their invasions and their taunts, are really not nearly so clever, so creative, so resourceful as the vulnerable people who enter the battle in the name of God with a very, very different set of tactics. Don't be fooled. This is still battle and battle imagery is all over the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. And it's something that I think we need to take seriously. And it's something that I think we do need to critique. This is not, there's no way to completely engage this story without saying, man, I wish it was told a little differently. There's no way to come away from David and Goliath and not get some impression of violence that is condoned by God. And I think we need to examine that in our scriptures and talk about how those pressing forces of militarism and violence and empire have worked their way into our holiest texts. But this is also a story of struggle between good and evil that requires our attention, because instead of letting the powers of evil and empire set the terms for battle, David shows us what, it's look like, what it looks like to come in from a different angle to come invulnerable and innocent and childlike into the mechanisms of war and come out okay, alive, and victorious. So in this battle, David and Goliath, it's set in Palestine, and actually it's important to know some of the geography here. There are mountains in this area of the world, and the way that these armies have camped out there in in the mountains is where Saul and the Israelites live so they're kind of up in the mountains then there's a big valley and then there's another set of mountains that's where the Philistines are encamped and they've kind of been at a standstill because this army has come to invade Israel but they can't really go into the valley without putting themselves in a completely vulnerable position so they're just over here taunting and yelling and Israel's over here, quaking in their boots a little bit. And so the army says, okay, we're going to send our greatest warrior. And who do they pick? This, this army, which is representative of these systems of oppression and power and evil, their pick is their biggest, bulkiest dude. This giant, this six cubits in one span, covered from head to toe in bronze, has his own shield-bearer warrior. Goliath. And he's got all this armor and this weaponry and he says, come at me! Come fight me! And he's threatening and he's saying, you know, come to me. Come fight me. Throw it out. Prove yourself. And in his taunting and yelling, he says, whoever wins, everyone else will be servants and slaves. This is how we rule, is by power and might. So David... Uh, So Goliath enters this, this valley and just says, come at me. Everybody in Israel is too scared. They're looking at themselves and saying, I happen to not be nine feet tall. My armor looks not nearly as shiny and I don't have that kind of weaponry. And this is a warrior who's been trained his whole life in the ways of battle and violence and war and death. This is a person who has been trained to kill me. I don't know how to go up against that. And so nothing happens for days and days. And then this shepherd kid, who's too young to be in the army, by the way, he's not supposed to be there, he comes to deliver food for his brothers, and his brothers get mad at him because they're like, you just wanted to come see the fight. So he comes, and he hears that Goliath is threatening everybody. And he's like, yeah, I got this. I think this is fine. And his brothers are like, you're stupid, go home. But he ends up going to the king and saying, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a go. And so the king is like, are you kidding me? You're a child. You're a little child at that. You're a shepherd. What do you, what, what's your deal? And he's like, oh, I know predators. I know from predators. I'm a shepherd. I've been protecting my flock from bears and lions. And now we know from the larger story of the Bible that David is a faithful person He's a complicated person. There are some major screw-ups. Maybe we'll talk about those on some other horror story days. But David, on the whole, in Scripture, is depicted as somebody who is after God's own heart, somebody who is aligned with the spirit and will of God, somebody who just gets it most of the time. And so David knows about predators and the way they attack the innocent knows how to defend a flock. And so he says, I got this. King Saul is like, okay, all right, well, we're going to need to get you some armor. So Saul tries to give him armor, tries to dress him up in the trappings of empire, tries to make him a low-rent Goliath, but he's a child, and so it doesn't fit. The armor doesn't fit. He can't even walk on it. The world will always do this to us, by the way. When we try and go up against empire, when we try and go up against evil, when we try and go up against these systems that seem so big and so giant that they cannot be defeated, the world will always try and tell us to dress up like them, to take their tactics, to try and win in hand-to-hand combat with the systems of power and evil. And that's, of course, setting us up for failure. Because if our hearts are aligned, with the will of God. If we are approaching this battle, this struggle with hearts of peace and love and kingdom, the armor won't fit anyway. We won't be able to walk freely. We won't be able to come with our vulnerability and our innocence. So David said, No, I'm not gonna wear this. And he takes it off. He picks up some stones from the ground. The ground, the earth, that is God's creation, and he takes them with him, and he goes to Goliath, vulnerable, silly even. He's a child walking into a war zone without armor, without visible weaponry. He's got his staff because he's a shepherd. Goliath sees him and laughs, is insulted. Oh, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? Goliath doesn't even understand what kind of threat David could pose to him because Goliath is so used to just stomping people out. And so David, in his smallness, in his vulnerability, stands before Goliath and claims the name of the Lord. says, this battle isn't mine. This battle belongs to the Lord. And in fact, the Lord doesn't save by spears and swords. So, how is the Lord going to save David from this one? I can only imagine the Philistines of that army laughing, the ridicule, because they don't understand their own vulnerabilities. Systems of power think that their way is the only way. They've convinced us of that too. So they swing through the world with their violence and their weapons. And we stand there thinking, I've got nothing because my weapons are so small in comparison. And so instead, David goes into this battle with almost nothing. But he goes in with faith and with cunning and with a different kind of strength. He has a sling. Now, a sling is a deadly weapon, but it's not one that's expected. And I bring that up because God didn't send David in unprepared or under-resourced. God just sent David in looking very, very out of place. It is a trust, not a miracle, in a different kind of power. And so when David takes his sling and he throws it, throws this rock, we will rock Goliath, it hits Goliath squarely between the eyes. Now it doesn't say that the rock actually killed Goliath. It just says that he fell down. And so David approaches Goliath with just his sling. Goliath, caught off guard by the innocence of this child and the boldness of this child, is lying on the battlefield with his sword. And so David, with Goliath's sword, kills Goliath and cuts off his head. Now again, I want us to be very critical of this and to say even our texts can seem to celebrate gore and violence and we need to be cautious about this. But I do think that there is something powerful to be said by the fact that Goliath dies by his own sword. And that's not long, well, maybe a few thousand years, before Jesus reminds us that those who live by their swords will die by them. That these powers of the world who wield their violence without question, will be felled by that same violence. Here is this little shepherd boy, with his innocence and vulnerability and cunning and creativity, who does not bring a sword to battle and wins anyway. And the giant who wielded the sword dies by it. And we know in that moment, giants can be defeated. The empire that calls itself unbeatable is a liar. When Goliath falls, The whole army flees in terror. We are unexpectedly strong in our innocence and vulnerability. God has given us creativity and cunning, and it may seem ridiculous for us to challenge systems of oppression and power and evil, but white supremacy and nationalism and queerphobia and misogyny and ableism and xenophobia are not unstoppable forces as they pretend to be. And you know what? Neither is depression. Neither is loneliness. Neither is anxiety. Neither is that feeling that keeps you up at night that you think you cannot survive. It is not unstoppable. It is not overcomable. And you don't have to be like it in order to come through it. The battle belongs to the Lord. We cannot fight these things by their terms as we have been taught to do. Audrey Lord once told us, preached to us, prophesied that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Do not put on the trappings of war and empire and fear and violence. If your heart is aligned with God, they won't fit anyway. So what are the tools of the kingdom of God? Well, in one of the many battle imagery passages of our scriptures. It describes the armor of God in Ephesians. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Our weapons our love and praise and glory. Our protection is the truth and peace of God. And we might seem very silly when we walk into battle clothed, And protected with righteousness. The world will laugh at us, but the powers that oppress us will fall and they'll fall and die by their own means. Let us not pretend that we are not at war, in battle, in a struggle. I know that it's hard not to be swept up in the mechanisms of empire and evil and oppression. Let us not sanitize and pretend. I know that your life is hard, that sometimes just getting through the day is a struggle that seems insurmountable, and that there are many things that would pull you from the core of who you are into the ways of the world of evil and violence and despair that say, come to my side. I'll protect you. I've got the armies. We can't believe Evil when it says, my way is all there is. Let us instead go vulnerable, childlike, resolute, clothed in love and praise, declaring that the victory has already been won by our God who is with us, who will resource us, who will surprise the whole world by God's victory. And let us still critique our stories of war. But let us go together saying the battle is won, and the battle is different than you thought it was, and the battle doesn't require us to have weapons that look like metal and bronze. The battle requires our weapons to be love and compassion and kindness and faith, to be truth and righteousness. Let us give ourselves to one another as an army of peace. Let us go not away from the battle saying, oh, that's too dirty and messy for me, I'll pretend it isn't here, but go into the battle, straight into the heart of the things that scare and oppress us. Let us stand with boldness and courage and faith and declare that the battle belongs to God, who is not a God of destruction or war, but a God of creative and beautiful and cunning and clever love. That victory belongs to God, and it looks so different and so sweet. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, invite us into a different kind of battle. Challenge our hearts to see your creative invitation. Give us the tools to stand firm in the face of every form of violence and to return not violence, but love. Love. God, bring us through to the other side. Help us to rely on you. Help us to be bold and take risks. Surprise us at every turn. Amen.